Right, good evening. Welcome to the 34th episode of the Big Issues podcast. I am formally broadcasting along with my good friend James Roxburgh and we will be talking about the George Bush presidency. We will be looking at his first term domestic policy, his early life, his governorships of Texas, his 2000 election campaign, his first term domestic policy, his first term foreign policy, the 2004 re-elect, the second term domestic policy, the second term foreign policy and talking about it as we go along. This is going to be a 90 minute episode, we'll be finished by half past nine, and this is take two because of an issue with the first record, so let's get on, let's get it, let's start. So, please before we start, can we please assess what the issue was? Down close, the voice memo. <laughs> right, basically, whilst I was trying to close iTunes and click quit on iTunes, because I was putting a clip on of George Bush, I ended up quitting quit on voice memos like a complete klutz and ended up deleting the whole recording as we were 38 minutes in. So that is why we are re-recording for a second time. And God willing, I will not delete it for a second time. So, (laughs) right, okay, let's begin. So, July 6, 1946, George W. Bush was born in New Haven, Connecticut. He's, of course, the uh, son of George Herbert Walker Bush, who was, of course, President George H.W. Bush. And the first grandson of Prescott Bush, who was, of course, the U.S. Senator from Connecticut and the leader of the Wise Men. Uh, the Wise Men, of course, were a group of three distinguished Republican foreign policy thinkers who advised President Truman and George Marshall on how to rebuild Western Europe after the Second World War. Bush attended many public schools in Midland, Texas, Houston, Texas, and, of course, they attended Yale University. Um... Bush, of course, stayed in the 187th Wing, a rich man's military wing, as it became known as, because it was a group full of uh, basically wealthy business people's sons. And the issue of the 187th Wing was because he wanted to, he was serving because his family had served and because it was the time of the Vietnam War. So the way he got out of the draft was he served in the 187th Artillery Wing, which only was ever going to be at war if Oklahoma invaded Texas, which is never going to happen. So Bush got out of military service. Now... Because Bush went astray, he started doing community Bible study sessions to take faith into his heart. He met Laura Welch, who became known as Laura Bush. This was a case of opposite attracting because Laura Bush was a calm, gentle, former school librarian, a Democrat, a friend of Scoop Jackson, sorry, campaigner for Scoop Jackson, who was the Democrat from Washington, and George Bush was a loud, abrasive, arrogant Texan. And of course, during the Bush had tried uh, to find an oil company that failed. So during the 88 presidential campaign, Bush sold his oil business and worked on the George H.W. Bush campaign. And in fairness to him, did a pretty good job in managing the in working with Jim Baker, Lee Atwater, uh, other people to get the campaign running. And in fairness, they won. And famously, when Bush asked what my title would be, H.W. said, you're my son. You don't require a title. And Bush decided to quit drinking and bring religion into his heart. And once Bush won the election, he decided to buy the Texas Rangers baseball team, which is a very big uh, baseball team. And while he was at the Rangers, he went to all 254 counties in Texas to get name recognition. Mm. What about what comes next makes that more easy to understand. Tell us about his 94 bid for running the governor of Texas, James. Okay, so, so the fact that he owns uh, Rangers... Uh, uh, Texas Rangers and visited 254 counties of Texas, all of them, um, made it quite uh, made his campaign a lot easier when it came to running for governor of Texas. 
Uh, George W. Bush ran against Anne Richards. Um, who, she, she was a popular incumbent, powerful Democrat. Right. She was very popular in the Democratic Party. She was a powerful member of the Democratic Party as well. So she was a, one of the higher ups in the Democratic Party system. And Bush decided to run against her, which many saw, many saw as a bold act to do. Um, Carl R- Rove was signed up as the campaign manager, and Rove, who was captivated uh, by Bush, uh, decided to help him out. Um, Bush and uh, R- Rove had very similar ideas when it came to uh, when it came to the governor of Texas and what they should do to help out, uh, Texas. They also uh, got help from Karen Hughes and Joe Alva, um, who also helped in the two thousand uh, uh, campaign action as well. Um, Bush spent the campaign talking about the need for welfare reform and dealing with crime and education. And the message of discipline was common throughout the campaign. Mm. And it really did work. It really did grasp hold of Texans. It really did stick with them. Discipline is what they thought they wanted and, for, and, what, and what they voted for. Um, Bush was actually doing the unthinkable at the time. And Texas, in that way, the government, Texas this time was seen as a red state. But during that time, it wasn't. Very blue. Um, Very and blue. Bush, and Bush was doing the thing about was actually about to win the election. Democrats in Texas, if I remember correctly, they won it under Reagan, they won it under Nixon, they I they won it under Eisenhower, and they won it under Goldwater, and that was it. Mm. Because everyone remembers. Because the Democrats, except for Calvin except for the twenties and the fifties and the eighties would always carry Texas. Texas was a Democrat state. They, and okay, Democrats were more conservative back then. But, you know, famously, uh, the Republicans never had a re-elected governor in Texas until George W. Bush. It was Bill Clements one term and then Bush two terms. So mm. Texas was a very Democratic state, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, but um, it, is, it is different because Jeb Bush, um, his brother, uh, George Bush's brother, ran a, di- a completely different campaign. And he lost a lot in Charles, and an yeah. incumbent Democrat uh, rising well, to the Lord right. Lawton Charles was a very powerful Democrat. Lawton Charles <laughs> was the gov- senator, then he became the governor of, Fa- of Florida, and he was a liberal Democrat, a very well liked liberal Democrat. And it was, a, it, was a, look, it was a difference in campaign, okay? The two most powerful and most popular governors in the US in 1993 were Mario Cuomo, the Democrat from New York, and Ann Richards, the Democrat from Texas. Both of them incidentally lost in 94 to uh, George Pataki in New York and obviously George Bush in Texas. What did Bush do right? Bush campaigned on welfare reform, tackling crime, reforming education. So if you're a moderate Democrat or a conservative Democrat, so basically left of centre or centre-left, you could feel this is a Republican that speaks common sense, that understands the issues, and I'm voting for him. And he netted a lot of Democrats to vote for him. Jeb Bush ran as an authentic right-wing conservative Democrat, sorry, conservative Republican in Florida. And it didn't work because Lottie Childs was still a very popular man and probably would have won in 98. And incidentally, when Bush ran in 98 for the governorship of Florida, what does he do? He pivots to the center. Massively. Mm. Because he says how he works for his brother. Anyways, and obviously Joe Albor and Karen Hughes, uh, who were on his campaign, were also on the 2000 re-election in Florida, helping the recount, and Carl Rove was, of course, his Alistair Campbell, uh, sorry, Peter Mandelson figure, the guy who just thinks of all all the crazy, silly ideas that Bush could come out with. 
Uh, and George Bush probably beat Anne Richardson. Yeah. Uh, Anne Richards, not Anne Richardson. Anne Richardson. By quite a lot as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, what, what did he do as governor of Texas, Dad? What did he actually do? One minute, one minute, one minute. 94. What did he win by? 94. 7.6. Well, I suppose that's close enough to 8 points. Um, right, so... <laughs> did he, wait, did he get a bigger margin than Bill Clements? He did get a bigger margin than Bill Clements. Christ, he got the biggest margin of any Republican for governorship. Anyways, so what did he do as governor of Texas after winning the biggest margin of any Republican governor of Texas in history? He... Well, the first thing he does is he knows he's got a Texas House that's Democratic, a Texas Senate that's Democratic, so he's going to have to get along with them. And obviously Bob Bullock was the lieutenant governor at the time, and that's like the deputy prime minister to, for the UK context. And Bob Bullock is a freaking sociopath. It's well known famously since, for example, of Bob Bullock, there was a, a state senator who was very reluctant to vote for the Democrats, Bullock dragged him to his, grabbed the man by his collar, dragged him to his office and said, you will vote for the governor's bill or else I will have you, and walked off. Uh, Bullock famously was a, a, a very liberal Democrat. Because remember, in Texas, though the Democratic Party on social issues is conservative, on the domestic issues, on, you know, the healthcare system, the education system, they're not that different from, say, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And a lot of Texan Democrats adore uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Lyndon Baines Johnson. So, Bullock, Karl Rove, knowing what a mental man he is, they decide, instead of doing what Republicans did, normally with Democrats, they'd say, you know, we're running the show, deal with it. George Bush famously met Bob Bullock in their first meeting and said, Bob, to be honest with you, I don't know much about Texas politics. Now, you're a genius in there, so how do we get bills passed? And he started talking about legislation, on tax cuts, on welfare reform, and Bob Bullock leaves going... God almighty, that man's got brains. He's hard, he's going to be hard to beat. Because obviously Bob Bullock, the year before, gave him a speech saying, the trouble with Republicans, they've got no brains or spines. Um, <laughs> which is fair enough. That's quite interesting. But what did he do? So George Bush, first of all, passes a tax cut with the state surplus. He passes privatisation of the social services. He passes the renewable energy and wind power. He looks at bringing faith-based initiatives into the schools, which he does successfully. And what happens... Well, in his first term, crime is down by a quarter. The economy is growing the fastest except for New York. Unemployment's at 3.2%, leaving illegal costs with 2.2%, the lowest except for New York. Uh, what else does he do? The social services are not very good, but that's because you privatise social services. What the hell do you expect them to be, you fool? There's more wind power developing in the renewable energy sector, which is actually a pretty good idea. And overall, the economy's better. So... On his 50th birthday party, what does Bob Bullock say to the whole room? We are looking at the next president of the United States. Mm. The most powerful Democrat in the state of Texas said, we are looking at the most next president of the United States. Yeah. As Bullock's famously said in his memoirs, he said, if you have someone like him who is a conservative Republican but knows actually how, how to reach out to liberals, you win. Which is, yeah. it's, that's, the John, that's what I call the John Danforth psyche. Which is, yeah. if you're a liberal Democrat, in the American context, not the British context, but the American context, but you understand how to reach out to Republicans, like for example Ted Kennedy did regularly, you'll be a very successful legislator. If you're a conservative Republican, like John Danforth or Bob Dole or Bob Michael, and you have to reach out to Democrats, you'll be successful legislating. And in fairness to him, 
Bush was the most successful governor of Texas in terms of legislation for two decades. Yeah. Because he got the Democrats around him. Now, uh, yeah. so that's what he did. He did things like tax cuts and school and privatizations and financial and uh, wind power and faith-based initiatives, and he was pro- and he was pro-life. But he won a second term, and the first Republican yeah. to ever win a second term. Yeah, and Bob Bullock was proved right in the two thousand run. Bush did win, and Bush, however, well, sadly, didn't go his two thousand run. Bush declared his candidacy on June twelfth, nineteen ninety-nine. Did not win the election. Um, well, yeah. another day. Uh, Anyway, <laughs> and um, the president, and that the current candidacy is basically saying, I want yeah. to run for president of the United right. States. And in the Republican Party, um, he was up against some quite strong contenders, such as Bob Smith, John Cage, uh, Pat Buchanan, Lamar Alexander, Dan Quayle, Elizabeth Dole, Steve Forbes, Gary Boyer, uh, Alan Keyes, and John McCain, who mm-hmm. went up against Obama. Um, I mean, that candidate pool is actually quite good because you've got John Kasich, who when a congressman negotiated a balanced budget deal with Erskine Bowles, Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton, you have Pat Buchanan, who's basically a, a, a nutter, in, a complete nutter, but at least he says, I'm a nutter, but he said, no, I'm a nutter. Lamar Alexander, who was Republican Secretary of State of Education, George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, Dan Quayle, who was George H.W. Bush's vice president and a man who couldn't spell the word potato, Elizabeth Dole, who was Bob Dole's wife and a very good senator from North Carolina, Steve Forbes, the man who believes in the flat tax, don't know who Gary Bauer is. Alan Keyes, the man who called for privatization of health and education, and John McCain, who had the potential of being the best president in thirty years if he picked the right VP. As picking Sarah Palin as he says was an incredibly silly thing to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the political, uh, the so there's there was an effective sustained funding effort throughout the campaign, which really did help Bush's uh, thing. And the political positions he states his uh, thing on, uh, his campaign on, was foreign policies. He called for a reduction in foreign intervention. Yeah. He called for a tough but humble foreign policy. Correct. Um, on September second, nineteen ninety nine, Bush gave his first major policy speech, uh, where he talks about uh, education reform and testing schools and closing down public schools with parents being able uh, being allowed to choose between public or private schools via vouchers. Mm. Anybody about pre- watching our previous podcast would understand I mean that are very different uh, opinions on vouchers uh, for private schools. Um, but that, that's for another episode. Um, he, called, he also called for an across-the-board tax cut as shown in the 2001 proposal of $1.3 trillion dollars um, which could be said to contribute a lot to the financial crisis. Um, he also called for an, an increase in the earned income tax credit and a $400 child tax credit as well. He called for domestic production of renewable energies, a good idea. He called for the drilling in Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, oh, a less good Jesus. idea. Uh, he wanted to create an alternative to Medicare, yep. allowing elderly people to buy into private med- medical insurance he also called for prescription drug benefits along with Medicare itself. Um, this this is basically making Medi- Medicare more privatized version of itself. Yeah. Um, he also called for two thousand dollar fundable credits for healthcare yeah. costs and a deregulation of the health industry. Oh god! Which is one of the ludicrous ideas I've ever heard come from an aspiring aspiring president. Yep. Um, the, fact, the fact that he wants to deregulate the health service is one of the it's so unbelievably stupid. I don't even know understand how you've got the private insurance system. What's the issue? It has two. It doesn't have enough regulations. What's the solution? 
Get rid of current regulations. What? That's illogical. <laughs> um, he wanted to ensure that people invested a proportion of their social security oh, tax, which was 2% yeah. of the 6.2% they paid, yeah. into private stock markets. Privatising which, social again, security. Again, uneducated people investing to the stock market could be a whole heap of reasons, could add to the heap of reasons yeah. why their stock market crashed. I mean, it's basically, um, it's, they're basically saying, let, Chile's got a good pension system, let's do Chile, but let's do it in a bad way so people yeah. can take only 2% of their earnings and stick it in the stock market or break social oh. security. What a yeah. bunch of muppets. Um, he didn't call for alterations in gun control, nope. especially after, especially after a number of matches that happened in years pre, uh, prior, and, and criticised illegal immigration, but wanted to simplify the legal migration process to make it easier for more legal migrants to come. I mean, Bush, um, in fairness to him, in the second term with immigration reform, Bush did actually have a good plan, which was uh, unconditional amnesty for all current illegal immigrants, tripling the border patrol, expanding legal migrants and expanding all legal routes so that there'd be no such thing as legal immigration aiding south america so therefore they could develop their own uh industries and giving citizenship to children who are already here that's actually yeah. a good plan but it's a good plan the issue was uh, that I, came I, after I, social security reform which wasn't a good plan and it died in the committee yeah. and it was it was very different to, uh, to republicans at the time most republicans were very harsh on immigrants and as you could see with donald trump what, advocating to build an actual wall was it shows shows, shows how liberal bush was when it comes to the old he talked about the wall and he said there's no way of getting over the wall but maybe for a rope <laughs> <laughs> you fake bastard of course yes do you want to unless you want to build a wall to the heavens you everyone can get over the wall you fool i mean no um, what a cretin but yeah the bush immigration plan in 06 wasn't really that far from the obama immigration plan of 2013 no. The gang is seven negotiated. Anyway, keep going. He wanted a 2.7 billion dollar. Uh, he wanted 2.7 billion dollars to encourage more ho home ownership. Yeah. Um. He called for an expansion on faith-based initiatives. Very good. He promised yeah. to have real campaign finance reforms. Campaign gold. And yeah. uh, whilst using uh, 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 some kind of a ludicrous <laughs> finance using all forms of other money to help him out. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and. And he advocates to use half of the surplus for social security yeah. and debt reductions and a quarter for tax cuts and another quarter for the rest of the issues. Um, as Bush won the nomination, he picked Dick Cheney. He also strongly considered John but went for somebody whose policy credentials are beyond doubt. And he then closed... Not that uh, one was that you had... So what, Cheney wanted to be... Was asked twice to be vice president. Cheney said no, twice. Then he was asked, then Bush asked Cheney, well, why don't you head up the vice presidential select committee so we know so you can pick the vice president yourself? Cheney goes, oh, fair enough, fair enough. So Cheney comes up with uh, John Danforth, who is a Republican from Missouri, a conservative Republican, but adored by Democrats because he was often the beacon for bipartisanship within the Senate. And remember, Robert C. Byrd famously said, if you want to learn how to speak, if we Democrats learn how to speak Republican, we all go to John. And if Republicans want to learn how to speak Democratic, they all go to John because he tells them how to speak Democratic. Um, but he was a bipartisan Republican. He was very much liked by uh, liberals like Teddy Kennedy, who adored him. Uh, liberals like Robert Byrd liked him. But also conservatives like Clarence Thomas and Orrin Hatch and McConnell liked him too. So he was basically a respected guy. Uh, Colin Powell was shortlisted. 
uh, Powell was a very liberal Republican because, of course, he was going to run in 96, but said not to. He was very much on the uh, pro-Medicare, pro-Medicaid, pro-Social Security, federal education, uh, socially liberal. So he could have won in 96, but he said not to run. Uh, who else was picked? Tom Ridge was nominated, but he, apparently Governor Bush didn't like him at the time because Tom Ridge was pro-choice. And as, as, as Governor Bush said, we will not have anyone pro-choice on the tickets. Right, so you just ruled out mm. Colin Powell and John Danforth there. Well done, well done. But Cheney, Cheney was fascinating to me because Cheney was, of course, the chief of staff under Jerry Ford, congressman under Reagan, defense secretary under Bush, H.W. Bush, and his policy credentials were totally beyond doubt to such an extent where you couldn't really say Bush wasn't experienced because Dick Cheney was a good, uh, was a, a fine thinker on policy. It's just all the policies he thought were stupid. And famously, if you watch the Cheney-Lieberman debate of 2000, where uh, the Vice President, uh, Al Gore's VP, Joe Lieberman, Senator from Connecticut, and Dick Cheney debating each other, it was due to one of the most polite and respectful debates, and also one of the most policy-oriented debates that was fascinating to watch. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, Let's keep going. Um, he, was there, he was closely competing against the Democratic nominee, Al Gore. Yeah. Al Gore was a, was a very strong candidate, he but was. the fact that a closely election was in the end, it came down to one state. And what's off there in a quick second? The it was a close contest. However, Gore stupidly or cleverly didn't stupidly. use Clinton and pivoted to the left. Of stupidly, Democrats. how do you not campaign with a president that has a 64% approval rating? What, what goes through your mind? We're not going to campaign with Bill Clinton. Why? Uh, well, the chattering classes don't like him. Sodom, 64% of the country. He's got Eisenhower-level approval ratings. Get campaign with him, man. And we see, we see him with uh, Nixon in 60. Famously, Nixon didn't campaign with, uh, with General Eisenhower till the final week of the campaign. And in the final week of the campaign, they went up five points in three days. They went from 46 to 51 in three days. Because they did a massive uh, parade where basically they they went down central New York, um, ticker tape parade, and it was just him and Eisenhower going, yeah, look at us, look at us. We are, remember us, we've been running your country for eight years, hey. But Clinton was, Clinton, yes, he was a polarizing figure, but he, 23 million new jobs, the balanced budget, welfare reform, Kennedy Casabon, the crime bill, the Sotomans ban. Oh, just listen to the pre, listen to the Clinton episode, you'll know what he did good. But uh, Gordon campaigned with him. Now, Gore, actually, policy-wise, had some good ideas. The lockbox for Medicare and Social Security. If they do, if the lockbox had been put in, what it meant in plain English was the federal government could not take money out of the Medicare and Social Security trust funds to finance other projects. It means that the trust fund would have an extra 50 years of life. The idea of funding uh, the Department of Education, the idea of putting more money into energy conservation. So Gore, actually, was a good policy thinker. The issue was... Um, he campaign with Bill Clinton. Actually, I've got a story about Al Gore that I learned a few weeks ago that I heard about it and I started laughing. Do you know Barry Goldwater hit Al Gore over the head with a cane? No. Right. So Al Gore, in 1984, when he was a senator, uh, wanted to give his speech. So he got all the cameras to film at 8pm and he was filming him a speech about some procedural matter. Barry Goldwater heard of this and was very, very cross. So he went on the Senate floor, got his cane out, and hit Al Gore over the head. Gore fell flat on the desk like that. Goldwater looked at him and said, I knew your father. He was a great man. 
He wouldn't have done this for the press. How dare you do this to your dad? Because remember, there was three generations of Gore senators. You had T.P. Gore in the 1930s. You had Al Gore Sr. in the 60s. And you had Al Gore in the 80s. Yeah. But I find that funny how Barry Goldwater, bad enough in his 70s, and still sent from Arizona, basically hit him over the head with a cane. What, what, what <laughs> okay, so Anyways, so Gore go. so runs the debates, and the first debate was very hostile. Um, famously, Bush was going after him. Second, it was more collegiate as far as policy. And third was the town hall debate. Anyways, let's yeah. talk about the election night. Come on then. Let's talk about election night. Now, um, there was a back and forth between the key state of Florida. <laughs> Uh, and I think every single person, I think Guy's mentioned it, every single podcast, no matter what the podcast whether you NHS to education policies of the United Kingdom, he somehow managed to mention this. Um, uh, the back and forth between Florida and Bush uh, being the third winner. And with four and a half weeks. James. Uh, sorry? I did it even with the Pakistan episode. Yeah, you did. Um... And declare and where Bush is being declared the winner. He didn't win. With the with the four and a half week battle, yeah. Bush won as the Supreme Court decided Anointed to avoid the Florida Supreme Court. Anointed. And allow state right uh, not and that basically didn't allow a state right. The Supreme Recalled, Court violated with, the tenth amendment of the United States Constitution. No, the Supreme Court violated the tenth amendment of the U.S. Constitution, violating states' rights, just so the seven-two Rehnquist Court could make him the president of the United States. If if Bush was asking for a recount in Florida, would the Supreme Court have told him to stop? Nope, because that was a Republican Supreme Court that fucked us over. Well, after the Supreme Court anointed him the president on December the 13th, 2000, in defiance of the world of the American people and the defiance of the people of Florida, in fairness to him, his victory speech is unifying. Because uh, Jim Leahy, who was the Speaker of the House in Texas, Democrat, introduced him. It was good. And Bush gave a speech about healing the country, about taking the best of Democrat ideas, taking the best from Republican ideas, coming to the centre ground. And then, of course, who's the first cabinet minister he announces? Colin Powell. The very first is Colin Powell. Then he announces Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> and because Donald Rumsfeld is no longer here on this planet... And because I can assume barely anyone listens to this podcast, I can strictly say that Donald Rumsfeld is a very, 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 very worrying man. Anyways, um, so Rumsfeld's appointed. And of course, the first policy thing Bush does is the faith-based initiatives on January 29th, where they provide extra funding to the schools on the basis they do religious practices. And the same day, they do the energy commissions headed up by Dick Cheney, and they create the, uh, the uh, deregulation of energy bills. February the 4th, Bush announces $1 billion of help for the disabled people, building on the Americans with Disabilities Act. Then comes the tax cut, where Bush, deciding, knowing there's going to be a $2.8 trillion surplus over the next 10 years, a surplus we created after we inherited a $400 billion annual deficit, they squander that on a $1.6 trillion tax cut which is later put down to $1.3 and then condensed to $130 billion a year, so $1.3 over 10 years. Um, 
And of course, Bush announces he wants to withdraw from the Kyoto Treaty, which is the International Treaty on Climate Change. May the 16th, the uh, Bush tax plan is voted through the Congress, which basically is cutting rates across income tax rates and corporation tax rates and sales tax rates across the board. With, two, with 216 of the 220 Republicans voting for it, 13 of the 210 Democrats voting for it. Uh, it was basically voted through the House 230 to 197, right? Um, mm. That's not right, is it? No, it wasn't. Oh, no, sorry, it's 232. All right, one minute. Bush tax cuts 2001 vote house. Economic, it's called the Economic Growth and Tax Reconciliation Act. Oh, it was passed 230 to 197. I was right. Okay, and it passed the Senate 58-33 with uh, 10 Democrats voting for it, 7 abstentions, 2 voting presidents. Uh, $1.3 trillion over 10 years was passed over the tax cuts. So, July 6, 2001, the 11th Anniversary of American Disabilities Act was signed into law because, of course, George Herbert Walker Bush and Tom Foley, Speaker of the House, George Mitchell, Senate Majority Leader, Bob Michael, who was, of course, Republican Minority Leader in the House, and Bob Dole, Republican Senate Minority Leader, had co-authored a very progressive bill to ensure disabled people's rights were kept. And 29th of July 2001, the Election Reform Commission was set up, uh, was headed, of course, by Jim Baker and President Carter, and they recommend, I think it was nearly 50 recommendations, one of which was voter ID. And voter ID, they recommended that the state should issue a voter identification card to every single person above the age of 18 that they should be allowed to call their own, and in return, they'd be allowed to vote. And President Carter says correctly that if an African-American, which are often the most repressed in terms of voting, had the ability to go up to a poll a polling officer and says, this is my government-issued ID card, then no polling watcher in the South could ever turn them away from the polls. So they'd be allowed to vote. And I think if you do it like that, rather than having so many silly ideas, but just one simple card, it, this was an American solution. It doesn't work in the UK, because in the UK there is no such thing as voter fraud. But in the USA, it does work. One card, issued with everybody, with their tax papers, and in return, you vote. That would drive up turnout, in my view. Now, comes September 11th, 2001. With uh, two planes were hijacked into the World Trade Center, and another one in Pentagon, and another one ended up crashing in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. 2,996 people died, 6,000 were injured. It was, of course, the biggest attack in the USA since Pearl Harbor in 1941. On the day of uh, the crash, of, of, the, of the attack, uh, Republicans and Democrats stood on the steps of Congress. Initially, it was meant to be a speech because they had, what was it? It was Dick Gephardt, Tom Daschle, Dennis Haster, Trent Lott, so you had the Democrat Minority Leader, the Democrat Senate Majority Leader, the Republican Speaker of the House, Republican Senate Minority Leader, all giving speeches in solidarity with the United States of America, and then out of nowhere, suddenly, I think it was actually John Bro started the singing, he starts singing God Bless America. <laughs> To the 
Bush in the 2001 joint session references how touched they were by the singing of God Bless America. But basically, that was a signal of bipartisanship. It was a signal of bipartisanship that was good. And of course, the first foreign leader to meet uh, President Bush after 9 11 was a man called Anthony Charles Linton Blair. Tony Blair, of course, uh, which led to Blair actually being the honored guest at President Bush's speech. Because on June on seven twentieth, Bush goes to Congress and gives a speech, and um, Denny Hastert was there, and Robert C. Byrd was there. I mean, Robert C. Byrd was then Senate Majority Leader, and they made him that. Uh, sorry, Senate Pro Tem President Pro Tempore. So they basically gave him the right to sit behind the president, and um, famously, Bush goes, "What was it? America has no truer friend than Great Britain." And I'm so honoured that the British Prime Minister has flown over an ocean to come and show solidarity with the United States of America. So, Bush decides to give a speech at the National Cathedral, which was known as the This Nation is Peaceful but Face When Under Tax speech, with honoured guests like Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Carter, George Herbert Walker Bush. On the same day, of course, President Bush decided to go to uh, New York City uh, to go and observe the damage himself. And whilst he go he stands on a truck to go and talk to the frontline workers who were there. Viewers. And basically, whilst he's giving a sp this, well, the start of a speech, spontaneously, of course, uh, this is what happens. A man says they can't hear him, so his Bush is responding. the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you. And the people and the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. That was of course totally spont spontaneous. Of course, mm. actually, seeing the coverage, why not? Because the next day, of course, Bush goes to Camp David, and here's what happens. Does it go straight to Camp David? I think it does. Actually, yes, it does. One minute. Oh, it does go straight to Camp David. And Bush talks at Camp David about his strategy. He convened a meeting of his national security team at Camp David in rural Maryland. By the way, Camp David is like the American version of Checkers. Right now, U.S. intelligence had confirmed that Al-Qaeda had been responsible for the attack and were being sheltered and supported by the Taliban government in Afghanistan. We're going to meet and deliberate and discuss, but there's no question about it. This act will not stand. We will find those who did it. We will smoke them out of their holes. We'll get them running. And we'll bring them to justice. Some advisors urge Bush to exercise diplomacy. But the president was having none of it. There was breakfast before the policy meeting started. And I was standing with the president and a State Department official came over and essentially lobbied the president that we should put pressure on the Taliban to give bin Laden over to the United States and to kick Al Qaeda out of their country. 
and the president looked at us and he said, fuck it, we're going to war. The president's mindset. Right. So that's what happened in the aftermath of response to Nines. Now, Bush, however, famously on the March 14th gives the, you know, uh, famously gives this nation's peaceful and attack speech. The U.S. military force bill passes that allows Bush to invade, President Bush to invade whichever country he wishes. It passed 420 to 1. And on the 17th, both President Bush and Governor Ridge visited the Islamic centers in Washington and Pennsylvania and pleaded not to attack Muslims. But famously, uh, Tom Ridge, who's then the Republican governor of Pennsylvania, said, and I quote, The people who attacked America are, quote, radical Islamic Muslims. They are not normal Muslims. He said there is a difference between freedom-loving Muslims, which makes up 99% of Islam, and the 1% of extreme. He said the United States wants to root out the extremists, not the mainstream of peace-loving Muslims. Bush then reiterates remarks three days later, which is fair. Uh, of course, Bush spoke at the Congress, and then they signed the Patriot Act on October 26, 2001. Now we'll let Gore Vidal explain what was in the Patriot Act. Alright, share screen. It's not seen the USA Patriot Act was rushed through Congress 45 days after 9-11. We're expected to believe that it's carefully crafted 342 pages were written in that short time. Actually, it reads like a continuation of Clinton's post-Oklahoma City anti-terrorist act. The Patriot Act makes it possible for government agents to break into anyone's home when they're away, conduct a search and keep the citizen indefinitely from finding out that a warrant was issued or not. They can oblige librarians to tell them what books anyone has withdrawn. If the librarian refuses, he or she can be criminally charged. They can also collect your credit reports and other sensitive information without judicial approval or the citizen's content. Finally, all this unconstitutional activity need not have the slightest connection with terrorism. Early last month, the Justice Department leaked Patriot Act II, known as the Domestic Security Enhancement Act. As of January 9, 2003, it has not yet gone to Congress, but it has certainly been leaked, and I saw parts of it. Here's a provision. If an American citizen, born American citizen, has been accused of supporting an organization labeled as terrorist by the government, he can be deprived of his citizenship, even if he had no idea the organization had any link to terrorism. Provision Act 2 is also made for more searches and wiretaps without warrant, as well as Section 201, secret arrests. In case a citizen tries to fight back in order to retain the citizenship he or she was born with, those federal agents who conduct illegal surveillance with the blessing of high administration officials are immune from legal action. A native-born American deprived of citizenship would presumably be deported, as today a foreigner-born person can be deported. Also, according uh, to American citizens, the provision has some wonderful language in it. 
It says he can be deported, he's stripped of his citizenship, deported from the United States. Then they suddenly thought, well, what country would want him, you know? And, and uh, uh, we, we better rephrase this. Um, because he, he can't, of course, get a passport as he doesn't have citizenship. So the thoughtful devisers of our domestic security enhancement authorizes the Attorney General to deport him, quote, to any country or region, regardless of whether the country or region has a government. <laughs> well, it sounds like heaven to me. Golvedal <laughs> uh, never ceases to enjoy it. It makes me feel very happy and miserable at the same time. So that's that's the Patriot Act, <laughs> which which passed an idea to one in the Senate. God, <laughs> I mean, surely the response nine eleven was the, the World Trade Center was attacked, Pentagon was attacked. A tough response was required, and in my view, it was right that a tough response was delivered, because it was a it was a game, it was a changing event, a massive changing event, and it was right that they wanted to bring Bin into justice. It was right that they tried to. Uh, Get uh, destroy terror, but they forget. But they they forget this. They forget a very important fact. The day of nine eleven, the people of Tehran were not shot, were in the streets holding candles in solidarity with the United States of America. The Middle East in those three months could have been changed. Right, famously Tony Blair in two thousand one was it. The kaleidoscope is changing. The pieces have been re uh, of in the air. Before they do, let us reorder this world in the free in the values of peace, justice, and freedom. He he had a, they had a golden opportunity to rethink the, f the foreign policies, but I don't think they did it successfully, because you will talk about it in your piece about foreign policy, what they did with the United Nations and how they failed with the UN resolutions, and that ultimately was a disaster. So, anyways. But that's, there's a reason I don't talk about foreign policy and domestic policy on these podcasts. Now, um, back to domestic policy. So, on 7th of 1st, the stimulus bill that was developed by Bush with the unemployment compensation extended by 13 weeks and Medicaid allowed for uninsured people who lost their insurance due to health uh, due to health insurance companies stopping them. The very next day, uh, Enron files for bankruptcy. That's a scandal that nearly shook the foundations of the capitalist system um, with Ken Lay at Enron. The blithering fool that he was. No Child Left Behind was passed, actually, on uh, on January 9th, 2002. 384 to 45 in the House. That means over a just under 160 Democrats voted for it. And 91 to 8 in the Senate. Which means, yes, 42 Democrats voted for the President's legislation. Why? Who co-authored the bill? Teddy Kennedy, the most liberal Democrat in the United States, co-authored a bill that got uh, education standards up, investment up, dropped private school vouchers. Very good bill. Now, 2002, Bush gives a speech at the State of the Union to talk about the axis of evil with North Korea, Iran and Iraq. As Bush submitted the tooth budget, the surplus under Clinton was gone and we had a $187 billion deficit. Um, the McCain-Feingold Act, which regulates a campaign finance, was passed on March 27, 2002. After being in the committee for eight years, May 13th, Bush passes the Farm Security Act and Rural Investment Act, doubling the farm subsidies. 
Bush announced his intention for a Department of Homeland Security, which is of course established and then later headed up by Tom Ridge. Bush wanted to fast track citizenship for immigrants who had served in the military before and during 9-11. And in the midterms, the Republicans picked up nine seats in the House, going to 229, and one seat in the Senate, picking up the majority. March 4th, 2003, President Bush wants to reform the Medicare system with prescription drug coverage and allowing private plans to compete with Medicare. Uh, which is a silly idea because, of course, you cannot allow that to happen because Medicare is a government program. doesn't need privatisation. <clears throat> On March 25th, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the great Democrat from New York, the senator for there for over a quarter of a century and indeed uh, a key baron of thinking, the man most notable for giving speeches better when he was drunk than sober and yet still the man who worked on the 83 Social Security Commission dies at the age of 76. Bush in May wanted another, another $700 billion tax cut passed. You might have thought, after passing a $1.3 trillion tax cut that wasted the surplus, he might have learnt his lesson. No, we go full steam ahead with more tax cuts. Uh, it later passed $350 billion. November 25, 2003, Bush decides bans late-term abortions. December 8th, 2003, the Congress passes the Medicare Modernization Act, which basically passed, actually, do you want, James, guess how much it passed the House by? I don't have a clue, though. How many? Take a guess, take a guess. Uh, 50. 216 to 215. It passed by one vote. <laughs> one. I would like those eight Democrats that voted it for now to come up to me and apologize. They should apologize to the country for voting for private for partial privatization of the Medicaid program, uh, Medicare, and passing in Because even though it had a prescription drug coverage, the prescription drug coverage is what undermined it. Privatized the system. It was a silly book, bill, anyways. Uh, and Bush finishes the third year by basically ending the need for down payments on houses, deposits, uh, which of course led to the global financial crisis. Now, go on James, tell us about first term foreign policy. Right, so, in 2001, two, uh, two of Bush's first appointments were Donald Rumsfeld, as Secretary of Defence, yeah. and Colin Powell, as Secretary of, Secretary of State. Yeah. Bush, also, Bush also appointed Paul uh, Wolf Wolfowitz and... Condor. Yeah, Condor. Two nusses in their own right, yeah. Yeah. On August 6th, Bush was told in his daily intelligence briefing that the OBL was planning an attack on the USA. Do you know who OBL is, James? No. Osama bin Laden. So what? So just about a month earlier? Yep. He was told when he was in the ranch in Texas in his daily intelligence briefing, bin Laden planning to attack the US. So, um, then came 9-11, yep. and this completely derailed his foreign policy. Um, and the days after, uh, Bush met with, um, sorry. If you don't know TB. what TB stands for, then you should hang your head in shame. What does it stand for, Dan? Tony Blair, you thick fuck. It could be anybody, it's American. He met with Tony Blair. Um, President Chirac, <laughs> President, um, oh, yeah, Schroeder, and Professor Shroff. 
Yeah. And then and then came October seventh. Yeah. Uh, Bush announced the invasion of Afghanistan had begun. The aim to ba- uh, to hound the Taliban out of Afghanistan. Well, I mean, what do they do? What do they do? They 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 gave money to the warlords, and in return, the warlords can hound some Afghanistan, which they did. But there were only one people that were worse than the Taliban: the warlords. <laughs> we we are going to remove the, the enemy of freedom by putting in the biggest enemy of freedom even more the, the, the warlords yes. the infamously um, lost let, Bin Laden up to Bora Bora yeah, then came October 7th yeah. Bush announced the invasion of Afghanistan yeah. oh, I've heard that was like and Rumsfeld developed the unitary uh, executive firm this is important um, do you know what the, uh, was James uh, basically it's that to congress yeah, off you go. The UET was basically a thesis that was that did for eight years, which was that power lied with the president, and Congress's job is to nod through the legislation on foreign policy, and we had to make the bills. Because it used to be from forty six to two thousand and one was that Congress worked with the president on all foreign policy matters, and they developed a strategy. Cheney said no, <laughs> no UET. Uh, as they were gathering prisoners of war yeah. off the battlefield, they decided to ignore the Geneva Convention yeah. of Human Rights, uh, a very disgusting thing. Yeah. Um, uh, kind of putting yourself at the level of the enemy, really. Everybody that. should go and watch the report. The film is called The Report. It talks about the failure of uh, the way they treated the prisoners of war uh, post-9-11. Because fam- yeah. it talks about how, basically, the FBI had took one of the POWs and treated him with a modicum of dignity and in return they were able to file a potential attack. They actually managed to file an attack because they got intelligence by treating him with dignity and you see, and basically the, the film also going to say how they then decided to botch that theory for seven years and go on to just say, no, don't just torture them. Which yeah. of course produced no intelligence at all. Yeah. So well done. Well done. Good idea. And on October 15th, Senate Majority Leader yeah. Dash, um, uh, Dashiell, Tommy Dashiell, yes, great chap. Dashiell, yeah, uh, had a package of uh, Amprax censoring that solidified uh, that solidified the attack. Yeah, in um, fairness to them, that did solidify the attack because I remember it was Bernard Shaw, uh, George Bush, Tom Dashiell, all had sent to them of Amprax packages, and Amprax is, is actually fatal. So yeah. uh, that solidified mentality of right, we're in attack, guys. And December the second, Bush meets Ariel Sharon, Ariel the Sharon. Prime Minister of Israel. Ariel Sharon, the most old oh, Sharon. Okay, so thing about this is interesting because Bush actually, towards the end of his presidency, genuinely wanted a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. He called for it. Mm. He called for a rolling back of the West Bank. He called for Gaza to be, not be occupied, but he said he would not deal with Prime Minister Arafat. Yes, Arafat, but he was going to deal with uh, Mahmoud Abbas. It was then the head of the, the, the Palestinian authorities. Now, everyone forgets this. James Baker, when he was the uh, Secretary of State under George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, and led foreign policy, mm-hmm. had to deal with Yitzhak Shamir. Now, Yitzhak, now, Yitzhak Shamir was very right-wing, very right-wing, and he described himself as a right-winger. But yet they got the Oslo Accords, which was then done by Prime Minister Rabin, and uh, Yasser Arafat, the agreed started to lay the punishments for the peace process. Yeah. Now, in fairness to Bush, once uh, Arafat was out of the equation, so to speak, he did go full throat for the peace process. But it was the initial ditching. Because remember, Clinton, at the end of his second term, had nearly did the Camp David Accords. 
which would have got people yeah. in Israel and Palestine, but it, it fell through the floor. Regrettably. Regrettably. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I would have In 2002. Uh, no, the year after. Um, it's only the one time. It's only the one other time Bush ever lost his temper. It was that, when he found no WMDs in Iraq. That was it. Yeah. When he went mental. Anyway, keep going. In 2002, in his first State of the Union address, uh, Bush declared the axis yeah. of evil between Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. I'm sorry, that still baffles me. Could you please tell me, President Bush, how many Iranians, Iraqis, and North Koreans were on those United Airlines flights that were hijacked? I think it's zero. Uh, how, how is Iran an enemy? Well, well, uh, weren't there Iranian men and women holding candles from the United States? Iraq, you put sanctions against them. And all right, they you can in some way an enemy, but sanctions against them. And the sanctions were working. And North Korea, for God's sake, we've not been at them for 50 years. <laughs> that was 50 uh, years ago. You could tell so, Rick Cheney wrote the speech. <laughs> so Colin Powell decided to try and create an international yes, di- diplomatic coalition for peace he in did. the Middle East. Him and a Jack good Stoyle. idea. Very good idea. And Bush, and Bush on June 24th called for, called for Chairman Yasser Araf. Uh, Araf? You will really pronounce Yasser Arafat's name correctly. What? Yasser Arafat, James. Yeah, all right. Uh, yeah. To resign as head of the PLO, Correct. and in return, they they can have they can be a genuine and real discussion yeah. on achieving peace between Israel and Palestine. Which was the like same, same before the second yes that I yeah, left. The that Bush genuinely, t- and I don't often and I don't give much credit to President Bush, but to his credit, when yes Arafat expired, um, they did go full throttle for a peace process. Yeah. On August, yeah. on August 13th, an editorial was commissioned and written by senior advisor to George H.W. Bush, Brent uh, Scott. Scott. None of them have simple names. No, no, simple names. Sorry, I forgot about D. There you go. Oh, Skorokoff. Yeah, Skorokoff. Skorokoff. Whatever his name is. It's good to that James is technically more intelligent than me and got better grades than I did. Not when it comes to reading, though. The detail <laughs> said, don't attack Iraq. Um, yeah. Bush then, uh, then on September 12th, went to the United Nations and asked them to pass the resolution wanting to disarm Saddam Hussein's nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, supposed nuclear weapons, shall we add? Supposed. I mean, look, with Saddam's um, nuclear weapons, look, the fact is this, and I and look, I'm still a, a, a massive opponent against the Iraq war. I believe the Iraq war was a disgusting war that was unnecessary in civilism at least. But... Saddam Hussein had used chemical weapons on his own civilians. He used them against the Kurds. He was deliberately obfuscating any attempt for the inspectors to go in and see. Because you remember, everyone forgets this, from October 2002 to February 2003, the inspections were happening. The, there were inspectors in there. And he blocked them and blocked them. Now, okay, there were no weapons. Of course there were no weapons, right? But if we go back to 91, if we, and I'm just trying to see from their perspective, personally I think the war was a farce, it was illegal and it was disgraceful, but if you're in their perspective we have to remember, he did invade Kuwait Yeah. he did invade Kuwait he did it illegally, and he broke and violated a member of the Arab League and it, and of course he used Scud missiles against Israel, against Scud missiles against the state of Israel, so it's, it's questionable, but of course the, the response with Iraq in 2003 was illogical, unthought through, and stupid. Yeah. But um, you can understand why they did what they did in terms of the 2002 paranoia, 
But my view is, is that once the second resolution didn't pass in 2003, that's the point they should have just said, no, don't do it, because we'll be violating the law. Uh, uh, so, however, on October 11th, the Senate voted 77 to 23. Yeah. And later in November, Tony Blair and uh, Colin Powell... Important, important message, important message here. The Senate voted 70, I forgot to clarify, my bad, which is that if... He said, if the UN gives us two resolutions, he said, if the UN has give, allows us to do it, then we will go to war. Mm. Which gave Hillary Clinton and others a massive leeway to <coughs> go to war. Anyways, what did... Uh, go on. Clinton. So, um, sorry, uh, Tony Blair and Colin Powell lobbied President Bush to go through the UN. So, in two fa- so we're moving to 2003 now. Uh, 2003, on February 5th, yeah. uh, Colin Powell went to the United Nations and with the information provided uh, by George Tennant and Scooter Living. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bush announces that Saddam Hussein has 48 hours to leave Iraq and March 19th, Bush announces his invasion of Iraq. Iraq. Um, March 29th, uh, days later, Bush announces further success by the removal of landmines and going straight into Baghdad. Right. Uh, 11 days later, uh, 11 days after that, Saddam Hussein's statue came plummeting down as the USA took yes. Baghdad. Donald Rumsfeld compared it to the fall of the Berlin Wall. I and mean, two days look, later... Let's look, at this. So let's look at the UN for a minute. So Blair and Powell say go through the UN. Bush tries to go through the UN. The second resolution doesn't get a uh, vote, ve- gets vetoed because President Chirac, who was a a, mem- a permanent member of the UN Security Council, says I will not vote for this mainly because of the Al- the French conflict with Algeria and how war still haunts him. Say we did with uh, Mark Hatfield. So at that point, any rational, sane person could have said, "It's clear we're not going to have an international coalition. Don't go to war." Right. I mean, everybody forgets, the first Gulf War had the UN backing. Yes. Which is why it was so successful, because there is an international force across the UN that went in, did the job, got Stamson out of Kuwait, and left. And us lot said, no, 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 we're going to get Tony and George, and they'll sort the problem out. I mean, for pity's sake. Mm. Uh, but then when we got to Stamson's statue, of course that was a good thing. But here's the issue, and James is about to explain us the issue. Yeah. Uh, so two days later, after the toppling of Saddam Hussein's statue, um, looting started, and April 11th, Rumsfeld uh, dismissed it by saying, three people are free to do for bad things." Um, three weeks later, Bush does the mission accomplished speech. Uh, the fact that uh, Donald Trump, uh, that Rumsfeld uh, free said, um, three people are free to do bad things." It's one of the most ludicrous statements anybody could ever make during the liberation of a country. The thing is, (laughs) Cheney and Rumsfeld, after Saddam Hussein's statue came down, said, get them out. Get them all out now. Because what they wanted to do was literally go in, get him out, leave. That was the strategy. Mm. And uh, Powell and Rice said, hold on a minute, we're there now. We're going to rebuild the country. Free people are free to do bad things. Um, May 12, 2003, uh, Bush appoints Paul Bremer to head up up Iraq, who decides decides to dismiss all the uh, 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 The baths, which is in effect dismissing all the civil servants who then 
all decide to go oh, and fight God. with insurgents against the Allied forces. Well done, Paul. Well done. Teachers, it nurses, was... police officers, water workers, electricity come in. Get rid of them all. And what are they doing? Oh, oh shit. They've got to fight with the insurgents. Oh, God. I mean, famously, that made the insurgents two to one. Because until that move, the Americans outdominated the insurgents. Yeah. And then Bremer says, no, what's going on? What a prat. Uh, on May 22nd, the UN lifted all sanctions against Iraq. Yeah. It had uh, imposed four years before. Uh, June 4th, Ariel Sharon and Mahmoud Abz- Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, met, met President Bush to discuss how to do the peace process. Yes, they did. And on July uh, 6th, a month later, Ambassador Wilson uh, went to Niger on the illusion that there uh, was a, a weapons of mass destruction link between Niger and Iraq, and there wasn't any. So he kind of struck himself in the foot by sending an ambassador there. As Bush sent out David K, uh, yes. uh, K to, find out, to find the weapons of mass destruction, he later made the discovery that there were no weapons of mass destruction not a singular one. They didn't have that little building in it. And December I mean, 13th... David Kay was the leading nuclear weapons expert in the United States. He was famously yeah. an advisor to President Reagan, President Bush, President Clinton, and he was trusted. So they sit out there, and they said, basically, find him. And a year later, David Kay comes back and there aren't any. And Bush sent <laughs> out the room and basically summoned director of the CIA as I'm screaming at them all. He was going, you, he told us there were weapons. Look at that. We've gone to 50% of the polls. You fucked us. He, he went mental. Oh, he's, oh, God, there were no DMDs. Um, and on December 13th, the USA finally captured Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Have you ever watched Saddam Hussein's trial? Sorry. I was in, yes, I was in his trial, yes. You can bang, it doesn't judge, bang that hammer on your head. Uh, so, so now, the fact that they didn't find any weapons of mass destruction went to war for apparently no reason. Nope. Uh, well, well, they didn't go to war for a reason, but the reason wasn't there. Um, well, no, no, what, the reason, the reason, Af- people say the reason was 9-11. No, 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 no. Afghanistan was that reason. The reason 9-11 was going to Afghanistan, find Osama bin Laden, have him captured, bring him to justice. That was Afghanistan. That's why Afghanistan was legitimate, justified, and effective, right? Now, the fact that they didn't fight, the fact they lost him at Tora Bora, well, that made the whole war invalid. But Iraq, what was the point of that? Genuinely, what was the point of it? There were no Iraqi hijackers. Or was it just because they wanted Saddam Hussein? And yes, Saddam Hussein was a tyrant, he was a dictator, he had it, it violated the rights of Kurds, and I'm not one second saying he was a good leader. He was a bleeding psychopath. But, my grievance with Iraq, the Iraq war, was very simple. You cannot go into the purporters of freedom and the rule of law if you violate international law yourself. Mm. And when they did not get the second resolution to top onto resolution 1441, and as the resolu- resolution 1441 demanded, they got a second resolution internationally verified. They didn't. They didn't. And we just said, nope, let's go. I mean, Tony Blair, I mean, the TB, who was told by George W. Bush, you don't have to go to Iraq, right? Donald Rumsfeld famously said, there are workarounds, there are workarounds, the problem. And he still went in. Now, okay, I accept that they had different motives. Tony Blair was a liberal, humanitarian interventionist thinker. 
who freed the Muslims of Kosovo, who freed the people of Sierra Leone, and Bush, Cheney, Wolfowitz were more nation-building, will be greeted as heroes. But I still think mm-hmm. that the war was illegal because it violated United Nations law. And mm. however horrific Saddam Hussein was, and he was, no doubt, you don't go in to another country illegally. You do an international coalition, you get the second resolution, then you go in, and then you go in with a fucking plan. Yeah. Colin Powell, after Saddam Hussein was deposed, said, right, here's what we're going to do. We need to bring the civil servants under US control... And we need to now invest $50 billion into the waterworks, the electricity industry, the schools, the hospitals. Basically, we've got to rebuild Iraq. Perfectly sensible solution. Now, what does Paul Bremen decide to do? Dismiss them all. Oh, God. It was the lack of... It was necessarily going as as the fact they had no plan whatsoever made the situation so much worse. They could have been out of Iraq, James, probably by 2006 if they'd done it correctly. They were there for, what, 10 years? Mm. Anyways, rant over. Okay, so so then, um, how how did this affect his two thousand four re-election right. campaign? So Bush, of course, uh, been anointed by the Supreme Court. Karl Rove tells him you've actually got to be legitimately elected the president of the United States, not by the Supreme Court. And of course, Bush was the first. If Bush did win, he would do something his father couldn't do: win re-election. Bush starts win twice. Of, win twice, yeah. He was 53% approval. So Bush, of course, uh, starts the year talking about the No Child Left Behind Act, which, in fairness to him, even though he had underfunded it, had actually increased school standards, increased performance standards, had got more children literate. It was a good bill, actually. Fair play to the guy. Um, And in his first major policy speech, he announces he wants to provide amnesty to all 7 million illegal immigrants. On the 1st of, of April 2004, Bush signs the Violence Against the Unborn Act, criminalising violence against pregnant women. I mean, I, saw, I, I didn't know, I mean, wasn't it already illegal? I, I didn't know that was illegal. I didn't know that was already legal. I didn't know that was legal. It's, it's, already, it's already illegal, but it's a good bill nevertheless. 25th of April 2004, the Abu Ghraib scandal comes out, which is basically Blackwater. And by the way, I'll never use the phrase American soldiers, because these weren't American soldiers. These were private company troops going to run prisons, having had no qualifications to run prisons, no experience in running a prison, and committing, and I will use the US judge's word here, torture. Because anyone, people say, well, was it really? Well, if you study Abu Ghraib, you would know what happened was torture. Yeah. Right? And and you know what? I'm going to now use the words of Lindsey Graham, Senator from the Republican from South Carolina. We are talking about, we're talking about buggering people. We're talking about the deaths of people. We're talking about injuries inflicted on people. And the worst part of Abu Ghraib, most of them, were not yet no information of what was going on. Mm. None of them knew. Yeah. So they, so they, so as, and I'm now going to continue by quoting the words of Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina. So as Graham said, so you got the wrong people, brought them into the wrong site, and tortured them. And Lindsey Graham goes, so how do you call yourself men of military? You're men of fools. 
Mm. And he's right. Now, the reason I won't criticise the American military is because I think that there were many honourable troops who served with distinction and with honour in Iraq and Afghanistan. What I will criticise is the incompetence of private contractors that did things that were unspeakable and, by the way, did more to mobilise insurgents than anything. Mm. And, yeah. Yeah. Took three weeks for Bush to condemn it. Yeah. Shockingly long this time. That's disgusting. I mean, famously, you had I remember putting on my Instagram story of the chap uh, with the bag over his head that's standing on a box tied to a, a new and would be electrocuted every time he fell off. That was on the front cover of The Economist with the words, Resign, Rumsfeld. And famously, Rumsfeld didn't regret it because, I mean, famously, when they were right about how to do it, one of them was that you'd make them stand on a box for four hours. And Rumsfeld wrote, well, I had to stand every day for eight hours, so why can't they do the same? Cretin. You may notice I got a little bit tempered about that. Anyways... <laughs> Anyways, uh, March on May 17th, 2004. No, because it's just like the best foreign policy president, in my view, with the exception of Franklin D. Roosevelt, was Jimmy Carter. Because President, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Ronald Reagan actually, cause, and George Bush, HW for ending the Cold War. But Carter, well, Ronald Reagan was very good at talking to world leaders. His policy is not so much. Well, build up to build down was a great philosophy. The arms race was a great philosophy. Yeah, 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 true, yeah. But, but HW, I'm talking about as the top president. I want to. I'll put, I want to put Ronald Reagan as the top I give, to, I give it to Roosevelt, HW, yeah. Carter, Clinton, Reagan, in that order. I'll put Possibly I'll Eisenhower. I'll switch Clinton and Reagan around them. Pat and I would agree with it. Right. Yeah, because Ro- Roosevelt, because he won the World War. If you, if you win a World yeah, War, yeah, you right. are the greatest president of them all. But Carter, HW, because he ended the Cold War. Clinton, because of Kosovo and the human rights. But Carter, what did Carter say? Carter, when he did the Human Rights Doctrine speech, famously said, and Howard Dean later in 2004, if you treat people with respect, they will treat you with respect, which means the best way to cooperate with old enemies is, yes, they, we, it is to persuade them to take... He said exactly, to take Christ into their heart and make them see reality. Famously, what did Jimmy Carter do? Jimmy Carter went to Haiti when there were election issues there with the elections with the military dictatorship took over. What did he do? He got the military dictatorship to give way to the elected government. He established good relations with Fidel Castro, for God's sake. And, I, you know, I despise Castro as much as anyone does, but that's still a good thing. Famously with Panama Canal treaties with Omar Torrijos, who was the uh, general of Panama. Yes, a communist, but what happened? So there being a military conflict over the canal, um, it was given over peacefully. And I think that if that sort of... Farm, yes, you can be interventionist. I'm an interventionist. But I think you have to do with the respect for other people, of the, the innocent civilians, whilst one at the same time saying we're going to create a doctrine of human rights around the world. Because you can't yeah. go around Middle Eastern countries and say you must treat people with respect if you're not going to treat them with respect. Yeah. Anyways, I think that's probably the, the least controversial thing I've ever said on, in 37 episodes of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's everyone there, left or right, agreeing with me on that, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, uh, anyways, uh, so there we are. That's why you've got to be cautious but effective. And it's actually, when President Bush said, tough but humble, he got it right. Yeah. 
You got it. That's that, that's exactly the foreign policy you need. It's just a shame that that meant breaking international law and UN conventions and yes, yes. countries. <laughs> anyway, so May seventh, two thousand four. The Massachusetts Supreme Court decided to legalise same-sex marriage. Uh, Massachusetts, of course, is the home state of John Kerry, who is most likely going to be the Democratic nominee. And because it was legalised, what did Karl Rove decided to do? Get Republican governors to put same-sex marriage on the on down ballots so they could get all the Republicans out to be bigots. Mm. <laughs> Great. August 2004... Uh, the wretched Swift Boats for Veterans for Truth organization basically do five ads lying about John Kerry's noble service uh, in Vietnam. They call him a coward, a traitor to his country. And eight years later, after doing all the ads, the Swift Boats Veterans for Truth write a whole thousand-page report on how John Kerry was actually an amazing guy. He said with distinction in Vietnam and had helped two soldiers from dying in Vietnam and actually said with honor in his country. And everyone, and I remember, because if I was in the Kerry campaign, because Kerry did not, John Kerry did not release his naval records, right? Why not release your Navy records? Talk about how you give them three purple hearts, talk, which is based like an OBE in this country. Talk about how there were Republican soldiers that said you say, that you were honourably. Talk about the two men you saved in Vietnam. Talk about how John McCain and you became friends because of Vietnam. For God's sake, man, get the records out there. He said, no. He said, no. Let the attacks continue. Anyways, there were three debates uh, and one VP debate. Actually, it's interesting about Cheney, because Cheney went in the 2004 debate, was asked um, about the gridlock, because, of course, there was gridlock, because you had a 51-49 Senate, a 229-206 House Republican, and Cheney was asked, wait. President. Um. Yeah, so Cheney was asked by um, the moderator... Why is Congress so divided? And Cheney gives a, an interesting spiel about it in, the, in his 2004 vice presidential debate where he's debating Senator Edwards. Able to in these past four years to bridge that divide. Uh, well, I, I must say it's um, one of the disappointments of the last four years is that we've not been able to uh, do what the president did in Texas, for example, when he was able to reach across the aisle and and uh, bring Democrats along in major issues today. We had some success early on, I think a No Child Left Behind, when uh, we in fact had broad bipartisan support. Um, we had a lot of support for the Patriot Act when we passed that on a bipartisan basis. Now we're seeing uh, objections to that by the other side. Uh, all I know is, is to continue to try to work it. Um, it's a disappointment in the sense that I remember uh, from my earlier service, uh, when things worked much differently. When, in fact, um, some of my best friends in the Congress were people I worked with, like Tom Foley, who was a majority leader, later Speaker of the House. Uh, one of my strongest allies in Congress when I was Secretary of Defense was Jack Murtha, a Democrat who was Chairman of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. Uh, we used to be able to do more together on a bipartisan basis than seems possible these days. I'm not sure exactly why. Um, I think, uh, in part, it may be the change in, in uh, the majority-minority status in the House and Senate has been uh, difficult for both sides to adjust to. Uh, and the Senate, of course, has been very evenly divided, 50-50, uh, then 51-49, then 49-51 the other way. Uh, we'll keep working at it. I think it's important for us to try. Uh, I believe that it is uh, essential for us to do everything we can to garner as much support from the other side of the aisle as possible. 
Um, we've had uh, support, uh, we've had in our keynote address at our convention was delivered by Zell Miller. Uh, so there are some Democrats who, uh, who agree with our approach. Um, and uh, hopefully in a second term, uh, we'll see uh, an improvement along those lines. Senator. I mean, I had to put that for an interesting reason because Cheney, when he was a congressman, was actually, if he didn't uh, become defense secretary, could have become the speaker, actually, in two th- because it was it was Bob Michael was number one, then it was Newt Gingrich number two, and Cheney was third in line. Now, obviously, Bob Michael gave way in '94. Uh, Gingrich became a speaker and outthrown in '98. So by 1998, Ging- Dick Cheney could have become speaker of the house, mm. but he kept having heart yeah. attacks. <laughs> so that that ruled him out with his heart attacks. But Cheney was actually a respected Republican. He was respected because he was conservative. But he had, for God's sake, Speaker of the House, Tom Foley, Democrat, a very a third-way Democrat, liked him. Jack Murphy liked him. George Mitchell, liberal Democrat, liked him. Teddy Kennedy liked him. Ted Kennedy was, in my view, one of the most it's a misunderstood Democrat. Because even though he was a liberal lion, it's fair to say Kennedy had more Republican friends than Democrat friends. Yeah. With an equally, as John McCain said, when Ted Kennedy started shouting at you, you could be five corridors down and still hear him shouting at you with anger. But yeah. he was a passionate man. But Cheney was a very effective congressman. And that, it was just, but yeah, yeah, anyway. And oh, yeah, that's why I was going to tell the story. Right. Joe Lieberman, who was Al Gore's VP in 2000, was the Democrat senator in 1988, 1994, 2000, 2000, right? He was a 3 times Democrat senator, and he was a conservative Democrat, okay? He was a liberal on domestic policy issues, and he was a Republican on foreign policy issues. So, in 2006, Ned Lamont, who was running against him in the primary, beats Joe Lieberman, right? Narrow margin. So what does Lieberman decide to do? He says, I'm running as a third party. Connecticut for Lieberman. So what happens? Karl Rove, at the behest of Dick Cheney and George Bush, calls up Joe Lieberman and says, basically, the boss wants to make sure you win. So is there anything we can do to ensure you win? So what happened was the, the, the Joe Lieberman got in a bunch of Republican strategists to run him a centre campaign, where he campaigned for the unions, for healthcare, for education, but also for preserving freedom, intervening around the world, and being for the president on Iraq. And he won. As a third party, for the first time since Jim Buckley in 1970, a third party was elected into the Senate. Won 49.8% of the vote. (coughs) Mainly because the Republican, Alan Schlesinger, who's actually an (laughs) honourable fellow, was told, and I quote... Stay out of the race. Go, be gone. You're not allowed to take any funds. The RNC put all the funds in leave. I mean, famously, you know William F. Buckley, don't you? Sorry? You know Bill Buckley, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bill Buckley endorsed Joe Lieberman. Famously, he endorsed Lieberman in 1988 because he hated Lowell Weicker, who was the liberal Republican senator from Connecticut. And in 2006, he was asked, because he was still editor of National Review, he was asked, what do you think about Lieberman, Senator Bill? And he goes, well, I like Lieberman. He, he's, he's, quite, he's what I call, he call, he's called, and I quote, a realistic Democrat. But he won. <laughs> he was, yeah, Bill Buckley, he's a realistic Democrat. Uh, but he won, what was it? He won... 41% of the Democrats, he won 62% of the independents and 38% of Republicans. 
voted for the Lieberman. Yeah. That, I mean, fair play to the guy. Why the, how they got onto Lieberman? No, oh, Cheney. Cheney and Rove, right. Look, I can go on about Bill Buckley for hours. I mean, you and I did an episode where we react to, you know, the Vidal, Gore Vidal, Bill Buckley debates. Yeah. We're going to just generally sit and react to them. Why not? Why not? Why not? Anyways. Uh, oh, yes. So the three debates happen, and Bush wins the first one, loses the second one, loses the third one. Cheney wins the VP debate, obviously. And Bush wins in 2004. Now, in fairness, this is a more clear-cut win than the 2000 win was. But we could all dispute at the voter rolls of the state of Ohio. Uh, but I'm not going to do that because that's a less conclusive case than the 2000 election case. Now, Bush wins 286 to 254. He, uh, sorry, 284 to 254. He gets a couple more seats in the House, goes to 55 in the Senate and gets the second term. Yeah. Now, let's talk about second term domestic policy, then you can talk about the second term foreign policy. Yeah. So, two weeks after the second inauguration, Bush basically outlines his plan for social security. Privatising social security. Okay? So he takes 2% of the payroll tax and puts it in private accounts. Here's the issue. You just won 50.8% of the vote, and your first idea is to abolish the nation's most treasured social program. Really? Is that, is that even the thinking of a sane person? What? You, you, you haven't got the 16 to break the filibuster. You've barely won a majority in the House. And your first instinct is let's start a fight over abolishing social security. Yeah, it's a stupid debate. It's stupid, you can't win the debate. You know, Clinton, when he and uh, Gingrich were going to do Social Security reform, they agreed that they would raise the taxes on the rich, so the rich would have to pay the whole 6.2% rather than no tax on Social Security. The benefits would go up for the poorest, the retirement age would go up from 67 to 68 by the year 2050, and there'd be independent savings accounts on top of Social Security, so younger generation would have more to have than the current benefit. And that was a bipartisan agreement that would have been enacted into law had Bill Clinton decided not to have an affair with Monica Lewinsky. Now, <laughs> Bush says, let's go further. Let's privatise it. And what happens? In six months, they have, quote, 41 votes in the Senate. They don't have, they only get 50. Because you had Republicans saying, this is a crazy idea. Yeah. And it, and it, and it failed. It failed. Famously, Lindsey Graham tried to work out a compromise with the Democrats that basically, the, the, there would be no, uh, ta that though people could have private accounts, no portion of the payroll tax would go into private accounts and retirement age would go up and the payroll tax would go up as well. Which I think, to be brutally honest, it's working to a compromise. It's not how I would go about a compromise, but it's working to a compromise. Yes. Uh, we will... All right, okay. I think I might have done before, but I'll quickly give my social security plan. The reformer. So, if you look at my... People who read my Instagram stories would have seen my social security plan. Can you see it, James? 
Yeah. Alright, fine. So his so social security can go bust by 2035 unless you reform it. Here's what you do. You raise benefits by 15%. You do a slow benefit growth for the top 70%. So everybody, so the top, th low, lowest 80% would get their benefits uh, indexed to wages. The middle 40 would get a median between wages and prices. And the top 40 would get done by prices only. You raise the retirement age to 69. Now to my liberal friends who say, what? You want to raise the retirement age? Let me just make something abundantly clear. You can raise the retirement age from now to 69 by the year 2046. So, if you're below 45, you're not affected by this. And actually, it's about retirement age. Roosevelt, who is my hero, and I know James is very fond of FDR too, created yeah. Social Security Retirement Age at 65, right? He did that because life expectancy was 63. That's why he was 65. Roosevelt said it so people wouldn't be able to claim the benefit. Whereas in 69, when life expectancy is 78. Now, you index colas to the chain CPI. Basically, in plain English, that means that the rate of increase Social Security benefits shall go up by is the same rate prices go up by, which I think is a perfectly sensible argument to make. For the revenue side, you have to uh, raise the payroll tax by 0.8% to 7%. You have to put all wages under the payroll tax. You have to get all people under the payroll tax, their wage earners, and allow contributions to add-on accounts. So people not only have the social security, but they can make additional investments on savings accounts that the government will put security on. So in effect, that the savings account, they can never go downwards, it can only go upwards. Yeah. Other benefits, you create a baseline of $2,000 a month. You create a 5% annual increase for those above 80. You uh, limit spousal benefits for the highest earners. You expand them for the widowers, uh, the lowest earners. And you t and that's it. You could take the, And also, you take the top 1% out of the social security system. And also, uh, you... Bleh. There you go. That's what happens... There you go, James. That's what happens to social security if you do my plan. Oh, it's go. very good, Dad. Very good. The trust fund is saved, and the trust fund will keep growing. We'll pass the 60s era, and we'll get the trust fund growing indefinitely for the next 70 years. Yeah. Anyways, that little digression over. Back to the substance. So, hurricane energy bill, which is actually a very good energy bill, uh, which was investing, yes, in in fracking and drilling, but also did a $50 billion investment to wind and solar power past 87 to 11. You had uh, the Hurricane Katrina response, which was horrific. <laughs> it was horrific. Mm -hmm. Famously with George Bush flying over Hurricane Katrina, looking out the window, <laughs> seeing the, the damage done to New Orleans at the time. Uh, useless. To replace William Rehnquist, the racist Supreme Court Justice, who, when a Republican opposite of Arizona, went up to black people and demanded they recite the Constitution, otherwise they couldn't vote. Uh, he was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. They replaced him with John Roberts, the moderate, very sane guy, John Justice Roberts, good chap. And they were also... Wait, did they put Alito on the court vision? No, Alito's the yeah, okay. And, oh yeah, Bush's Social Security Plan failed in late 2005 because they the Senate would not even allow it to have a vote. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, if it allowed us to have a vote, it had gone 68-32 against. Now, President Bush appoints Ben Bernanke to head up the Federal Reserve. Good choice, since Bernanke would later 
um, deal with the global financial crisis quite masterfully. Bush reauthorizes the Patriot Act, which Gore Vidal explained how terrible it was. Bush decides to refight the domestic agenda with uh, with a plan for amnesty for 7 million illegal immigrants, which I think is a perfectly sensible thing to do. I mean, look, if you want to do immigration reform in 2022, here is generally how you do it. Get off your phone, man. Here is how you do it. You triple the number of people at the border patrol, so you tighten border security. You give an unconditional amnesty to all legal immigrants here. You expand uh, illegal migrate legal migration by tripling the, the allowed quotas. You grant citizenship to all anyone above sixty five and all children who are illegal immigrants but were brought in or have lived here for over thirty years. So they get citizenship. You say to the adults who are illegal immigrants, if you're willing to work in the public sector for five years as a teacher, a nurse, a doctor, then we will give you citizenship in five years. But you embrace the refugees, by and, but you also, uh, by allowing more refugees to come here, but you also provide annually $20 billion of aid to South America so they can develop their own industries without sending their people upwards. That's a bipartisan immigration reform package. Because... With immigration reform, you have to accept two things. One, you cannot give citizenship to all 30 million illegal immigrants when there are millions millions of legal immigrants that have waited in the line for citizenship. Number two, you are not going to deport 13 million people out of this country. It is physically, strategically, and logically impossible. It can't happen. So if you accept those two things as true, then you can work a compromise on how do we give the elderly and the young people citizenship, but equally, how do we also ensure that we tighten the border? So yeah. it's, almost, it's almost as I, it's almost, it's almost, it's almost, I have a good understanding of US politics. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, four to eight days later, oh, the lines there were so small. Right, I'm going to quickly just repeat the plan in case you didn't hear it. So, um, triple the border patrol, Tighten uh, a triple legal quotas on legal immigration. Provide citizenship to children and those above sixty-five who came here illegally. Uh, also provide amnesty to all uh, immig- illegal immigrants and ensure that those who work in the public public sector for five years are granted uh, a citizenship. Citizenship. Provide twenty billion dollars of aid to South America so they can redevelop their own industries there and also in- increase refugee quotas to allow refugees to come. Because I saw the lines were pretty small, so I didn't know if anybody anybody had got that. But there you are. Eight days. Uh, and of course, that actually, that didn't get off because of the midterms. Because the Democrats knew they were going to win the House and Senate. So they thought, let's just uh, delay the bill. Actually, they should have passed it because it was a good bill. It was a good bill, actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, June, so yeah, uh, July 19th, 2006, President Bush vetoes his first bill as president. Stem cells. Apparently, that is a huge crisis. Is stem cell research, even though stem cells can cure MS, help you with disabilities? No, because it comes from the fetus. So apparently, <laughs> apparently that that merits a veto, even though stem cell research is a perfectly sensible thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, eight days later, President Bush reauthorizes the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And November 10, 2006, the Democrats, for the first time since 1992, actually win Congress. Because famously, from 94 to 2006, the Republicans won the House and Senate every time. But the Democrats won 
51 seats in the Senate and won 235 in the House. Sorry, 233 in the House. Yes. 2007, the Democrats taking over Bush pledges to bipartisanship. Then Bush submits a budget on the 5th of February 2007. We're getting the deficit to zero. Great idea. Without raising taxes. Oh, God. So, the deficit that you created by, by cutting taxes like a possessed lunatic, you now want to then cut social programs, entitlement spending because of your own silliness. Oh, God. Anyways, um, March the 2nd, the No Child Left Behind Act was reauthorised. A very good bill. Bush advocates for tax reform on June 17th, calling for more tax cuts. I mean... For God's sake, you might have learned your lesson by now. Come on. You might have learned your lesson by now. And then August 27, 2007, Alberto Gonzalez, the incompetent attorney general, is finally fired for being an all-round twat. Uh, mainly for, uh, well, if you, you want a more comprehensive explanation, <laughs> you want a more comprehensive explanation, it's for mainly abusing civil rights and uh, liberties that individuals have by writing incompetent and drafting memos that only a legal person can understand because they're using precedents that were used 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And because it was deemed to be he was a corrupt man. Anyways, 2008. Now, I could explain to you the 2008 uh, domestic agenda in terms of the financial crisis, but I believe we've already explained the global financial crisis and how it was caused because Bear Stearns collapsed and Lehman Brothers collapsed. And as a result, you caused uh, mortgage-backed securities to go weak because of the incompetence of regulators in America. But instead, I'm going to let one of my guilty pleasures, Speaker Gingrich, explain how it actually happened. Strategy. The Bush stimulus back will be in desperate. We're all wrong. They know something. And so even if they don't know something, they have to pretend to know something. And if you actually track them week by week, you'll begin to figure out they were all wrong. You know, they, and all of you know, remember, the international elite said, we've got to pass a stimulus package. If we don't pass a stimulus package, we'll be in desperate trouble. I'm not talking about this year. I'm talking about last year, the Bush stimulus package. Because remember, we are now in the mid-game of the Bush-Obama strategy. It's very important to understand that. On domestic politics, this is not true in social policy. It's probably not true in most foreign policy. But on economic strategy as it relates to finance, there's a Bush-Obama strategy. And this is part of why both parties are going to be so messed up in another six months. And it's just going to be chaos. Okay, now what I mean by the Bush-Obama strategy, I mean you had last year, I think it was in March, somebody correct me, because I, I think March 2008. March, we had the $180 billion stimulus, remember that one? $600 checks to everybody who wasn't well enough off to be hated. No money for people who are well enough off to be hated. So of course what that meant was, if you were poor enough to get the $600 check, you did one of two things. You either paid off your credit card, or you rushed off to Walmart and bought goods from China. So China was thrilled. They thought this was a great stimulus package. <laughs> it didn't help the American economy at all. In fact, it put us $180 billion further in debt. Correct. So then I remember, because I was up at the uh, Capitol doing some stuff, and we had the, the $345 billion housing package in July. Had to pass it. Vitally important. 
going to really help bail out the housing project. Now, of course, it didn't work. So then in October, we got a twofer. In October, we got, first of all, the $700 billion Wall Street bailout. Which, which the worst Secretary of Treasury in American history had to have. Because it was decisive and vital. And if we didn't get it immediately, who knows what bad things will happen. And we have to have it immediately, even though we can't spend it immediately. But if we don't get it immediately, we won't be able to spend it later. So if you don't give it to us right now, who knows what bad things will happen. So unless you want to be responsible for bad things, give me the money. Okay? Combined with the $4 trillion Federal Reserve guarantee. So by the time we got done with Bush's part of the Bush-Obama strategy, we were into the system for about a trillion two in spending and about four trillion in guarantees. Y'all with me so far? Yes, we are new. Now this turned out not to be enough, so of course we immediately, immediately had to pass a $787 billion bailout, which no one was allowed to read. Because if you had read it, you would have noticed there was a clause put in there by Chris Dodd, who got more money from AIG than anybody else, uh, which happens to say AIG is allowed to pay bonuses. Which, of course, now that they're paying the bonuses, he hates. So he is now talking about passing a confiscatory retroactive tax to, to tax the bonuses. And, of course, you now have Geithner, who, having failed to do his own income, his own taxes for four years, is now cleverly come up with a $2 trillion potential bailout to pile on top of the $4 trillion, or, or guarantee, rather, uh, to pile on top of the $4 trillion guarantee. So you, as a citizen, are now on the hook for about $2 trillion in extra spending and $6 trillion in um, guarantees. And you all are young enough, this should be a... Does that adequately explain the 2008 domestic policies? <laughs> I, I, th I think that does, yeah. I mean, if you want a more comprehensive explanation of the financial crisis, listen to our episode of the podcast where we talk about the financial crisis from the British and American perspective that I can assure you is much more comprehensive than Mr. Speaker's analysis, though very interesting. But to be brutally honest... That is what happened. After bailout, after Bear Stearns collapsed, then came the housing bailout. Because of that, you had Lehman Brothers, because Lehman Brothers collapsed, and you had TARP, and then you had certain bills of TARP, and that failed miserably, because ultimately, the bailout strategy was basically help creditors. Help the creditors. Mm. Not, not. I mean, famously, Bush said, what was it? If the choice is between being Hoover and Roosevelt, you better believe I'm being Roosevelt. The trouble is, you weren't Roosevelt. Roosevelt understood you have to regulate the banks... Number one, have public works programs to help the unemployed. Number two, expand the welfare system so people aren't poor. Number three, and have genuine assistance to the poor. Now, they didn't do anything for the poor because welfare had been abolished. It had been abolished because Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich allowed it to be abolished practically on its backside. Which, the next president, who we'll talk about in the future episode, probably was the most, cons it was the most conservative Democrat since Woodrow Wilson, did absolutely nothing for the poor. Anyways, tell us about his foreign policy. Right, okay, so it's broken down to years. We've got 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008. We start with 2005. And on January, on January the 30th of 2005, 
Bush had the Iraqi parliamentary elections. Very good. Which was a, de which was a declaration, which was a declaration, de declaration of freedom. Um, June 5th, 2005, Saddam Hussein was reformally tried in the courts. Yeah. And on August the 1st, um, Bush oh, appointed oh. John Bolton oh, as ambassador God. to the UN, replacing John Danforth. The worst, uh, Danforth. The worst point I've heard. See, you, you, you go from Danforth, who is a reconciliator, a mediator, someone who tries to bring people together, to the ne to the neocon of neocons that is John Bolton, <laughs> one of the most right wing foreign policy lunatics on this earth. Oh yeah. God, no! <laughs> anyway, keep going, keep going. But no, okay, so, him, I... him. the Iraqi parliamentary elections were good. That was a a staunch success, and I will give him full credit. I'll give the U.S. full credit for that because that was a good thing. That was a good thing. Uh, Seventh Day being put on trial. If you've seen the trials, they are interesting to watch. But his execution was also a very good thing. And appointing John Bolton was an utterly stupid idea. Yeah. Okay. So on in two thousand six now, uh, March twenty first, Bush defends U.S. military occupation in Iraq. Yes, too. On August 14th, 2006, the Lebanon Civil War was coming to an end. Bush had blamed uh, Hezbollah and dismissed their claims of success. On August 21st, uh, 2006, Bush still tried to draw a connection between Saddam Hussein and nuclear weapons. Oh, God! Oh, and um, on September 6th, 2006, uh, Bush announced that the CIA had kept high barrier de uh, detainees in a secret prison. Yeah. Emitting uh, uh, December 7th, Tony Blair uh, met to George Bush once again. The ninth time. And yeah. And December 18th, 2006, Donald Rumsfeld um, resigned. Woohoo, at last. And finally, literally the second to last day of the, uh, 2006, de uh, December the 30th, uh, December the 30th, Saddam Hussein was hanged. Yeah. Um, in 2007 now, mm. uh, February 10th, 2007, David Petraeus took over the military campaign on Iraq. Right, this um, is important because Petraeus, in fairness to him, did an outstanding job when he took over Iraq. Because what did Petraeus had understood, he did, he did the troop surge. Because what Petraeus had done was he took a region of Iraq and he put troops, he put more troops in, and they stabilized it from the insurgents. And in fairness, and you know, this is why I will give Bush credit actually, because the troop surge was a success. Because what it did was they put 50,000 more, 20,000 more troops in and they said, work with Petraeus and work with the commanders. They actually had leadership. Petraeus had brought leadership to the operation and as a result, Iraq had slowly become more stabilised and I'd say more stabilised than it was in April 2003 when they were looting. <laughs> so credit to Petraeus um, and credit to Bush. And also, this, it, it changed because Petraeus, who wasn't a neocon, he was a, a liberal interventionist, Dick Cheney did not have any say on this. Uh, no. See the link. No, he didn't. See the link. There we are. And we keep going. Okay, so um, on May 1st, 2007, yeah. Bush vetoes um, troop removal. Very bold. And continues the troop surge in Iraq. Very good. Um, very good. A very, as, Dad, as you just said, Dad, a very bold strategy, especially the Vietnam and how that went to everybody. By the mid-terms of 2006, the Republicans were set to lose 10 senators and 75 seats in the House by the mid of 2006, right? Before the midterms. Mitch McConnell, John Boehner, and others have basically said to Bush, 
Get out of Iraq. It is now unpopular. Well, it's three to one against Iraq. Three to one against. And he said, you're going to screw us in the midterms. Bush says, let's evaluate, regroup, rethink, do the troop search. And in Venice, it was a success. So good. I have um, credit for that. On July 30th, yeah. 2007, uh, President Bush meets with Gordon Brown, the Prime oh, Minister of the UK at the time. Um, November 27th, 2007, Prime Minister Omar of Israel and Prime Minister Abbas of Palestine and President Bush meet to continue the framework for peace. Do you know what the deal they nearly came to was? What? Israel would, uh, the West Bank would be rolled back to the Palestinians, Gaza would no longer be occupied in return, and, and Jerusalem would be, they'd basically designate religious sites in Jerusalem for the Jewish sites to be under Israel control and the Muslim and Palestinian control. And in return, Hamas would have to stop the shelling, would have to stop the anti-Israeli teaching in the schools, and would allow free passage of Jewish people to go into Palestinian territories. But in return, Palestinian people would be allowed to go into Israeli territories, and there would no, and the secret police could not be allowed to go and execute people randomly. Let's be trial by order. That was the deal they actually were going to come to in 08. And then mm. President Obama threw it in the bin. Yes. Um, so in 2008, um, roadside bombs had caused the death of 4,000 people so far. Can I one more point? Sorry? Can I one more point? Of course you can, Dad. The security of Israel, which is a very important priority of the United States and the Middle East, quite rightly that it is, that everyone who's for the security of the state of Israel, rightly, has to remember this. That Israel has achieved peace with two of its neighbours, with Jordan and with Egypt. And they've negotiated it by working, by ne they've got the peace by negotiating with the Jordanians and the Egyptians in 78 and with Jordanians respectively for peace. Now, if you're like me, who believes in the two-state solution, because I do believe that there must be a free, strong and effective state of Israel with a free, strong and effective state of Palestine, then you have to understand there must be negotiations. We can't do one side of it. It requires reasonable men, like you had with Prime Minister Rabin and uh, Yasser Arafat, like you had with uh, Sharon. In, in fairness to Sharon, he was becoming more and more senior by the day. Like I with Yasser Shamir, uh, you know, and Prime Minister Abbas. Reasonable men to say, let's. It's like with immigration reform. If we accept the extremes, can never possibly happen. Now let's go into the middle and see sense. And. Mm. That's why, and I think, to be honest, a lot of my foreign policy views, which, to be honest, are not very well thought through, I'll give you that. My domestic policy views are exceptionally thought through. Foreign policies are more, you know, I, I acknowledge it, understand it, but it's more sort of, let's let's take out the talking points and let's bring us together on the issues that we can agree on. But there has to be some form of the peace process brought back, personally, yeah. in my view. Anyways, keep going. So, on June 5th, 2008, the Senate Intelligence Committee found that there were exaggerations an intelligence of weapons of mass yeah, destruction. No shit. <laughs> and in June, and June 30th, 2008, yes. the report showed the army was inadequate to occupy Iraq. <laughs> yeah, it did. And, and September 1st, 2008, the success of the insurgents had allowed the US to turn over to the Iraqi military. In fairness to them, that's what happened. In fairness, because Petraeus had done such a good job in Iraq, they were able to informally withdraw combat operations by 2008. Yeah. And that's why I said if Petraeus had led the operation from the start, or at least they'd listened to him in 2004, America would have been out by 05, 06. No doubt. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
I think that was actually one of my more thoughtful episodes rather than one of my more thuggish episodes. <laughs> and I think it's one of your one of our best. Okay, so having looked at that and talked about it for at nearly two hours, an hour and forty eight, what do we think of him? Um, I think is I think he's a very divisive character. The, the question of whether or not he should even be in power in the first place is questionable. I think uh, his response to 9-11 was as good as any president could have done. Agreed. I think, I think, um, but I think, I mean, maybe the early years of Afghanistan, you could say he did a good policy as well. But I mean, after that, I mean, really, he wasn't really anything to write home about. My analysis on Bush is very simple. I think he was a horrendous first six years and a very good final two years as the president. I think that his no child left behind was very good. I thought his response post 9-11 in the immediate post 9-11 response was amazing. I thought Afghanistan was totally necessary. And then we reached the, the, the next four years, which were horrific. Because Iraq was illegal. Iran was unnecessary. Uh, Social security being privatised was just polarising, asking for problems. Medicare modernisation didn't do any of the sorts. And when they won in 04, it should have been, right, what's the biggest issue that could heal the country? Immigration reform. Because it's the one thing we actually have a centrist position on. So let's go for that instead, rather than taking social security out of the way. I think Hurricane Katrina took away his credibility. And then in fairness yeah. to him, Iraq-wise, it succeeded with Petraeus. And I'll give G General Petraeus a lot of credit, because I thought he was a fine leader in Iraq. But it was the failure. I mean, put it this way. He's not going on my Oval Office wall. No, Do you know what I mean? no he's not. Five presidents on the wall. Bush is not going to be one of them. I mean, I think everyone knows who mine will be. I think everyone knows who yours will be. But I'll just say it anyways. Roosevelt, Johnson, uh, H.W. Bush, uh, Clinton, and... Well, actually, you know, President Biden doesn't count. So it would be Theodore Roosevelt. I would put in mine FDR. Yep. Clinton. Yeah. Um, I would also put... Uh, Johnson? Johnson, LBJ, yeah. Yep. Uh, and then I also put... Um, trying to think. That's three, isn't it? Two more. Myself and... Uh, <laughs> HW? And, sorry? HW? George Herbert well, Bush? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I might Carter? put um, Carter on. Yeah, Car Carter's a good guy. I like Jimmy Carter. Right, this is done now, this episode. The next episode we're going to do, which we'll be now permanently doing on the Saturdays, we'll be talking about the National Health Service and reforming the NHS and rebuilding it along with the schools and talking about how we can rethink the health service, rethink education and rebuild it from the ground up. That will be next Saturday and we'll probably be airing at about 10 o'clock in the evenings. Uh, the following American episode will be President Barack Obama. We'll be talking about President Obama and then we'll probably be done for the President series and then we'll go on to do the UK Prime Ministers and then start about US political issues and we'll start taking the podcast from there. Every, now that James is back at Sixth Form and we're going to do episodes every Saturday. So every Saturday that we used to do, they'll be recording out uh, probably about 9 o'clock in the evening, maybe a bit earlier, maybe a bit later, depending on how long the recording goes for. But for now, enjoy the episode. Good day. See ya.